0: Before we get started, I want to take the opportunity to talk to you about our partner for this podcast, Famigo, formerly known as BravoPay. Famigo is a marketplace and payment platform for musicians and content creators like streamers, sports influencers, personal trainers, and, well, podcasters. You can create a fan page and set up shop offering physical and digital products as well as premium subscriptions. It's easy to share with others on your social media so that, for the rest of you, can support your favorite creators. Check it out at famigo.com. I'll leave more info in the description. You're listening to The 8020 Show, an inside look into the music industry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The 8020 Show. I am your wonderful host, Mike Zimmerlich, and my next guest is Otto Daniolo, producer, host of The Otto D Show, and founder of the RecordingArtist.com which you really should check out it's a lot of fun basically he has artists coming into the studio and they live stream for a couple hours of a full recording session and basically what he does is after the session the following day he mixes that song also live streamed honestly it's a fantastic way to really see behind the scenes of what the recording process is like and it's just a fun thing to watch honestly it's really a lot of it's a blast it really is In this interview, we explore how Otto got into music and production, as well as going into depth into what it takes to run a recording studio. Please enjoy this episode with Otto Doniello. Hey, Otto, how are you doing today? I'm doing
1: great, Michael. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really do appreciate it.
1: I really appreciate being invited. It's going to be fun.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, Otto, you and I also go quite a bit back. I mean, try to remember the first time we met, and I think that was gosh, five, six years ago now, maybe longer.
1: Probably a little longer. I think it would have been while Chaton was open on Brill Street. Yeah. Which closed in seven years ago. So,
0: okay. So it's been, been more than seven years. Wow. It's been quite some time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it, we've always crossed paths, whether it's through like networking events or, you know, or just coming, you know, swinging by at the studio, things like that. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a funny how things work out where, you know, one person leads you to another person leads you to another person and then you kind of form your own kind of group of people. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah it is true.
0: So uh, I wanted to get started by uh, asking you how did you get started in music? How did I get started in music?
1: Well I think you know like most of us that are that are find ourselves kind of stuck in music meaning that there's no place else to be but this this is what we're going to do. Um, I was one of those kids who would just play music all the time my parents would have had uh, like toy instruments you know and I'd be the one playing them so they'd get a nicer toy instrument and next thing you know you're at grade school and band instructor comes in and says hey who wants to be in the band sign up on this sheet on the wall and so I went up to sign up I was in third grade and you could pick your instrument which I thought was impressive I figured they must have had a big box of instruments so I put trumpet you know. Because uh, my dad had some trumpet records I really liked, Al Hurt and stuff. Uh, it was really great records. And so, uh, the, you know, the band instructor comes back to pick up the piece of paper and says, OK, everybody, uh, band class will be on Monday and make sure you have your instruments. <laughs> so I was like, OK. <laughs> I came home and told my mom, hey, mom, we have to get a trumpet because I joined the band. And they were kind enough. My parents to hunt down a trumpet. I think we rented one for a while and then we bought one, which I still have. Wow. Uh, and that's really where I started playing music. And then, you know, a little later, about seventh or eighth grade, uh, a friend brought an electric guitar in for kind of show and tell day. And He played Jingle Bells on an electric guitar and all the girls went crazy. And I thought, hmm, that's more interesting than trumpet. <laughs> so uh, I definitely wanted to get an electric guitar, which I then did and joined a band with some friends. And our first rehearsal was two days before our first gig. They already had a band. I was the last guy to get to be invited to participate. And, um, I remember we got there in the first rehearsal. First song we're going to do is Communication Breakdown by Led Zeppelin. So my buddy, and we're 13, and so my buddy is like, here here are the chords, A, D, A. And I'm like, A, D, A, what do you mean, what are chords? I don't know any chords. I just got my guitar. He's like, okay, then you just play lead, which meant just play notes and figure out which ones you can't play in every song and don't play them, you know, memorizing that on the fretboard in two days before we played our first little show. So that's kind of how it all started, you know, way back when. And then there's just no stopping. You, you, you keep playing, you keep uh, getting better, getting a nicer piece of equipment, you know, getting better guys in your band, getting more serious. When I was 16, we all joined the, the Musicians Union in Peoria, Illinois, so we could play in clubs. And, you know, my dad had his own uh, business. And so growing up, um, you know, we saw an entrepreneur. We saw somebody who was doing everything all the time. And so we didn't, I don't think any of us of the seven kids, I was third of seven, any of us wondered where we work. I think we all wondered what we'd run, you know, because that's just what our parents did. And so, um, you know, I was the one who ran the band. I would make flyers and put them up all over town and I would book the shows. And I was just the one who did work, who understood the work that was involved, where the rest of the guys really didn't see any work in it at all. You know, they just wanted to play. So that's really what got,
0: kind of got started. So, so being 16 now doing all these things, was that the point where you knew that you wanted to do this professionally or did you know even earlier than that?
1: I remember the very, remember that first gig I told you I was playing where I didn't know any chords. Yes. Uh, at the time, all of my brothers and I shared a bedroom. And so uh, I was, I came home from that gig that night and I woke up my little brother who was, a, who was a year younger and I shook his hand, you know, with that big grip. I said, I know what I'm going to do the rest of my life. You know, he was like, great. Can I go back to sleep? uh, I think think it did. It struck me immediately that performing was uh, being on stage was something I was just always going to do. Surprise, surprisingly, maybe I quit playing when I came to Arizona in in 1989. When I moved here, I'd been in the recording business as an instructor at a recording school in Ohio for seven years and, and came out here. And I really wanted to just engineer and produce. I think that I found in the studio, I could hire musicians a lot better than myself. And so it was much more fun to have great people playing the records instead of me playing the records, you know? And so I kind of didn't play. And, and for years, no one out here really knew I was a musician, which is kind of funny. Cause then uh, a friend of mine asked me, who did know, asked me if I would play at the fair, state fair, cause she had a stage to fill. So I got a bunch of my favorite friends in town who were players and they learned a couple of my tunes and, you know, we played. And, and that show was the first time I'd played probably in 10 years. And I was surprised. I was surprised I was off stage so long, and then it still took another ten years before I started playing again. So wow. for about twenty years, I just didn't didn't play out, which is kind of odd. But now we play out. Uh, you know, I can I can book I can pull in about thirty people to a show of my original music at ten dollars a head. So my band costs me you know fifteen hundred bucks. So I don't play a lot because, <laughs> but still um, that.
0: That's amazing, especially after that much of a gap to, to come back to music and then bring that back in as a You know, a music it's
1: interview. so much fun. And now I've, I am in two other uh, tribute shows where the show itself draws an audience. So, you know, I don't have to worry about that. I don't book it. And for the first time in my life, I'm a sideman. I'm I'm singing in this Brooks and Dunn tribute show where they book it all. They just send me my itinerary. You know, I get, go to the airport, I go to the hotel, I go to check and Everything's arranged, and it's just amazing how how wonderful that is. Not being in charge of everything, and just getting up and singing and going back home.
0: So that's yeah. Love. I find it's it's always a good balance, right? Like sometimes uh, as a you know, as an entrepreneur, it's always I always like to be the one that makes decisions and to oh, yeah. make sure everything's taken care. Of. But honestly, sometimes because that becomes your job is to yeah. do, is to handle everything. Sometimes it's kind of nice when you're like, oh, I'm just gonna go with the flow, and somebody else is worrying yeah. about things. It really is because
1: everything else I do in my life—the studio business, you know, recording, uh, the recording artist, my podcast, uh, the Lennon Show, or my shows—I'm in charge of everything. So to be a side man. It's almost like, okay, I'm forced to put my life on pause, stop, you can't work. You're on our hurry up and wait schedule, you know, until we get you back home. And so there's a whole lot of, you can sit there and go, oh, I would do this different. I could maximize this time better. I could do this or I could do that. But you just kind of let that go and go, it's not my job. I've got my guitar on my back and I'm gonna go where I'm told. And it forces you, at least for me, it kind of forces me to shut down. And I never shut down. So the travel dates for the tribute act by uh, the Brooks and Dunn show are like the most relaxing times I have <laughs> you know, in my business life. You know,
0: surprisingly, that makes so much sense. It really does. Cause again, that, that stress is just gone. And just like, yeah. it's, it's somebody else's responsibility. And like you said, you're just going where you're told and everything is, is handled. You just do, you know, do what you're supposed to do and do your job. That's right. That's right. So it's kind of It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. So um, going back for a second, so you mentioned about being, you know, doing producing and engineering. So when did you get into into recording on, on that side of the music industry?
1: Well, before you were born, I found this ad in Rolling Stone magazine to go to a place called the Recording Workshop in Ohio. It was 1982.
0: Oh, was, and, uh, oh, you beat me by two years. Only, only two years I'm really I want to make sure born. I got a head
1: start on you, man. So, uh, <laughs> I got, you know, I went, I went to this school and at the, the time had been open for about five years or six years, I think. And they were the only school then that had a recording program dedicated to recording engineering. Berkeley didn't have one. They had a class, but not like a course. And this was a five week course they had at the time, I think they had four studios, four or five studios in the facility, a dozen instructors. And they'd run about 60, 70 students through the five-week program with on-campus housing and the whole, whole nine yards. Uh, so I went there in 82 and started teaching there in 83. So it was kind of a kind of a wild thing. I had no intention of moving to Ohio to teach. In fact, I was in a band in Peoria, Illinois and I was about to turn 23. I was 22 at the time, I'd already gone to the school. And my dad says, what are you gonna do with your life? You know. Uh, I was already married and divorced I'm 22 years old you know had a child and I was like you know what am I what am I going to do I'm playing in a band and working construction for him and I said well I'm going to go to, I'm going to move to California and and give this a shot you know or I'll get a job and he's like okay well, when we need we need a time when you're going to make that decision and he says he says by well, your 23rd birthday and I said that was like 9 months away so I'm like yeah cuz at 22 that seemed like forever I
0: forever I go I yeah very yeah. about it,
1: right So about two weeks before my birthday, I remember him asking me, so what have you decided? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Are you going to move to California and be a big star or are you going to get a job? And so, uh, you know, being, I had a chip on my shoulder. Without thinking, I just said, I'm moving to California, you know, take that, you know. And then I went to um, a band practice, told my band I was quitting because I was moving to California in two weeks. And they were a little upset with me. I got home and had a phone call from the recording school in Ohio saying, hey, we'd like you to come out here and teach, you know. In fact, I told the band I was giving them four weeks, actually, before I was moving, because I had nowhere to go. I had had no idea I was even going to do it. Wow. But when they called me to move to Ohio, they said they wanted me there in two weeks. I went back to the band and said, hey, I have good news and bad news, you know. Which one do you want first? They said, the good news. I said, I'm not leaving the band in four weeks to go to California. I said, oh, great. What are you doing? I said, I'm going to Ohio in two. They weren't very excited with me. But then I did. I went to Ohio and I taught there, like I said, for seven years. I moved out here in 89 and uh, the very end of 89 and been working in studios here ever since. So.
0: What brought you out to uh, Arizona?
1: You know what? I was I was married. We were living in Ohio and, you know, Southern Ohio, which wasn't like, you know, oh, this is a wonderful place to be. It was nice. But I found that when I got hired to go produce records by bands from as far as Minneapolis or wherever around that area, Cleveland and around, that I really enjoyed going away and making a record. And then I realized that if, gosh, if that's what my life becomes, and that's what I want, then when I'm home is when I'm unemployed. And so home should be like I'm on vacation, because that's when I'm you know, that's where I'm at. So I wanted to find uh, some towns that would be kind of place where you feel like you kind of relax and take a break when you were living, not working. And so I didn't, I don't think I had the guts to move to LA or New York at the time. I think I was afraid of failing there. You know, people have irrational fears and certainly if you fail there, where are you gonna go next? <laughs> you can't move up the ladder. So I think that was part of my problem uh, then. And I started looking at uh, towns around LA and towns around New York so I could go into town and work. Uh, or I've essentially grow into that market if I felt I could. And Phoenix was one of the first towns we visited and we just loved it. And ironically, I ended up in business with a business partner weeks before I moved to Arizona. And the first thing I did was spend every weekend in LA working in a studio on the projects we were developing for the first year and a half I lived here. So it's like, I should have just gone to California. you know. But then um, I was doing a lot of work in Phoenix at a place in Paradise Valley called Chaton Recording. And so, uh, when our little production company uh, closed up shop and called it quits, I went there and said, Hey, you know, I've been a client of yours for a little while and I'm available to work if you want, if you need an engineer. And so, they started putting me on sessions and kind of grew into a role at that studio where the owners referred to me as their manager. Uh, it was never an official title, but that's kind of what they told me. <laughs> and so, I was there until um, about 1999 and then uh, they wanted to go close up shop. So I offered to buy the equipment and license the name and build my own studio. And they said, absolutely. They felt that my work, which earned the studio its first gold record, and, and uh, it, they really felt it was synonymous with the studio, my name and my work. So they licensed me the name Chaton for $1 and said that I could use it as long as I was in the recording industry. And then I would refer back to them when I decided to quit. Wow. So I built Chiton Studios to create a different name than Chaton Recordings, and it was in Central Phoenix. And built it through the year of 1999, and we opened in January 2000, right at the New Millennium. So, uh, and then was had that facility for 15 years. Closed up shop in 2015.
0: That's incredible. And over that time, I mean, you you've worked on projects for some of the, like the the you know the large largest individual you know. Players in the music industry. So, was that all through through the original owners of Chaton, or was that something that you worked on your own or through your partners? Like, how how did that process go about and getting those opportunities?
1: Well, I'll tell you what, I would say that if anybody wants those opportunities, build a big fancy studio because those clients are looking for that place and they'll typically bring an engineer, bring a producer, or you know, they may, they may actually want to deal with the local talent, but typically they just need a room. And so there's a certain level of, of room that they kind of feel comfortable and are required. So today that's probably changing today. Everybody works at home and everyone's used to that. And the, even the famous producers that are up and coming now that have had all these hit records have never been in a big fancy studio. <laughs> They've done it all at home. So that maybe the power of that, of that position is going away, but certainly in, in, the late 90s and, and 2000 to 2010, you know, the first 10 years I had that facility, um, at least half the calls were because they were looking for a big fancy room in Phoenix and I happened to have one. Uh, once you then work with them, then you become the guy, you know. So now they'll refer people or they'll come back to you when they weren't going to. So we got weird referrals. You know, we had a rock star from Germany uh, who lived in Uruguay, he'd retired. And decided you want to do a record in the american desert southwest and through a mutual friend he was directed to me and we ended up his whole family came to town and and we just had an incredibly wonderful experience for a month month and a half making a record and so you know that's that was something and then of course the the biggest asset from an engineer and producer uh, career in terms of moving your career forward are your clients i did a record with a particular saxophonist, uh, Eddie Mendenfield, who was playing on a Wayman Tisdale record. I did Wayman's first record when he moved here to town. He signed to the Phoenix Suns as a basketball player, and he also signed to Motown's jazz label, Mo Jazz, in the same week. So I got to work on his first you know, major release and his second album as well. And Eddie was a sax player that he had in his band. <clears throat> well, Eddie was in a bunch of bands, including he played with Sheila E. all the time, and his first tour was with Prince and Purple Rain. And Eddie loved working with me and John, uh, you know, Paris, was the Paris, who was the drummer, was now with Earth, Wind & Fire for the last 15 years. You know, um, these guys just loved working with me and loved how they felt comfortable with me in charge of the gear. So they started taking me out of town on all kinds of records. Every record they were involved in, they wanted me to be the guy on it. So, um the, you know, your clients, if, if that's what you want to do in this business, your clients are the ones that are going to lift you up. As their careers rise, they're going to take you if they feel confident in you. You know, the, the newbies, the first time you work with them, even if you're brilliant, they can't tell. They've never worked with anyone. So those clients might rise and they won't take you because they think you're just the local guy. So you see a lot of those slip through your fingers and then they come back later and they go, wow, you're really good. It's like, yeah, you couldn't tell, could you? Back in <laughs> Um, but so, I mean, I've had a few of those too, which is kind of funny, but ultimately I think the, the most powerful asset are relationships and making those artists feel like no matter what comes down the pike, you, know, you got that covered for them. And I think they don't want to know MP3 and sample rates and microphones and tech stuff. These days, maybe more and more are, are computer savvy as they record at home. But in the beginning, they were like, talk to my engineer. I don't know, I, I, I want to play my horn or I want to play my drums, you know. So I think them feeling confident, no matter what came, you can handle is very, very valuable to them, you know, as valuable as how good it's going to sound, just the fact that it's going to go smooth and it's not going to be a problem.
0: Absolutely. Uh, so, so it's, it's interesting cause I I've heard from so many people especially ones that want to get into the music industry on the recording side, they want to own their own studio. Like that is like their dream, right? But obviously, like you, like as you know, it's expensive because you have to get the space, and you have to, whether you're owning the building or renting, uh, leasing the space. But then also all the equipment that can easily lead into the hundreds of thousands, let alone tens of thousands of dollars to do. So that can, you know, that can seem very overwhelming, uh, for especially people that are just starting starting out. So um, for those who are looking to own their own studio someday. Um, do you have any recommendations for them, especially in you know in today's society?
1: Yeah. Well, initially, I would just say first you know substitute the word studio with anchor, and then let's talk about the purchase. You know, because once you have a facility, you're not going to work anywhere else. Uh, I was going all over the country making records until I built a studio, and then you know they wanted everyone came to my place. They wanted the same fee as just me because they were saving the studio fee. You know, and that's just the way rates were. But um, not just, you know, you mentioned the cost of getting in and getting set up and acoustically designing and equipment, but you know what? Two years from now, there's cooler equipment and your clients want that. So it's not just getting the equipment. It's constantly having the, the best cutting edge, state of the art, top of the line, everything, because that's what they're looking for. Now, if you have a home production room, you can have your gear and you can always go rent the studio that has everything on the days you need it or whatever project but if you're going to be that place you have to always be upgrading you have to always have the best of the best you know and sometimes you have to have a whole lot of things you don't need very often but you need them and you know, like do you really need a, a, an acoustic piano that's nine feet long some days you do and so you know it the record it, we had we did we did a sample record for pro tools it's a of the ravenscroft piano the guys who did that brought the piano in and recorded each note at each velocity you know for the sample software so it's like okay well that required a room where you could put up 16 microphones and get different sounds across the room all at the same time that could then be blended later into the the mix you know um, so, I mean, that was something that required a room. I had 22 string players in there for a, for a score being done by a, a writer in LA. Um, came to Phoenix to save some money when the union was actually on strike, I think in California, and some got a Phoenix orchestra together. And he gave me one of the highest compliments I'd ever gotten as an engineer. We're halfway through these, this date and I have the score spread out on the console, you know, and I haven't read music since I played trumpet in grade school, but I can tell when it's going up and down and where a space is so I can find my way. <laughs> And in Pro Tools, you have the bar markers set. So you can follow the score. And he would say to the director, You know, I want to pick it up at beat three of bar 22. Uh, We'll cue it from bar 20. Then he looks at me. And instead of having to say it again, that's where I am. I can see it on my screen, I've queued up. And I would just go. And it kind of shocked him that I was always ready. And at one point, he just stopped the session and he goes, This is ridiculous. And I said, What? He goes, It's like you're not even here. I said, What do you mean? He goes, You're invisible. You, you're not holding us up at all. I don't understand. Every engineer I work with says, oh, I have to do this. I have to set this compressor. I can't find that spot. I can't read the music. And I said, well, thanks. You know, I, mean, just, you, I hear you say where you want to go. I'm just going there. I heard what you wanted to punch in. I armed the tracks. You know, It's like, I'm just listening. But I think that that's one of the things, just being there, being aware, staying on top of what's happening uh, is a big part of what makes you successful. I needed a room for him, big enough, which we had, and quality microphones, which we had. But at that point, it's how well I ran the session that was the impressive thing, you know. Now I didn't get to work with him again because there's not a lot of that work he's coming to Phoenix for, it was just that one time. But, um, you know, the thing about owning a facility is you really, you gotta be willing to just go there. And, you know, look at your friends who own studios in town. Every social media post is them in that room, you know. Uh, Michael Bullenbach is, in Fullwell Studios on 99% of his posts, you know, on social media, which is cool. That's business. Um, But it's kind of like, get out of your room, you know, get out of your room. And and, uh, there's more, there's more outside, you know, and I guess another way to kind of to explain that is I remember thinking in my life after 15 years in that facility, trying to think of all the people I know, and where did I meet them, you know, in my life, all the important people, and every one of them I'd met in that room. And I'm kind of like, if I don't get out of this room, that really limits the people I'm going to meet. You know? Yeah. So just in life. And I think that's one of the reasons why I got back on stage. I thought I need to be meeting a lot more people.
0: That's smart. That is truly smart. I never thought about that that way, but you're right. If you're on your own studio and you're just in that room the entire time and then people are coming to you, you really are not expanding and building new relationships you know, yeah. outside of that space.
1: Yeah. And sadly for me, I'm not, you know, I've never been one who wants to hang out in the clubs. I'll want to see a band really bad and I'll get ready to go. And then it's like nine o'clock and I know they don't start till 10. I just like, I just don't. it's too late, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. which, is, which sucks. So that's a really horrible way to be, but um, I do try to get out. But I mean, I think if I were, if I were an, a guy who just wanted to hang in the, in the club scene all the time, then that's a great way to at least meet everybody and build, you know, social relationships that way. And I've just never been that guy. Didn't invest that kind of time in
0: it. It is it is challenging, especially when when you're so engrossed in your own work as well that mm-hmm. you know sometimes it's hard to to uh, to socialize. I find that uh, going to conferences really helps because you are literally in right. the environment to connect with other people right. and hang out with people and, and meet new people. So I love going to conferences for that reason and get a lot in in a very short period of time. Uh, you know, there's a lot of other tools out there, especially these days. Uh, I'm a big be- uh, uh, believer in clubhouse. Ironically, I haven't <laughs> been on clubhouse in a couple of months, but, um, clubhouse is a fantastic tool. Uh, I just got know, involved if, with it
1: a couple months ago, actually,
0: but it, you know, it, it is really great. I really like it a lot. It does, uh, you, you could not only jump into just chats and just listen into people, different experts on all kinds of different subject, subject matters, but there's, um, especially the smaller ones, they'll, you, you can raise your hand and be invited up on stage and then literally have a conversation with people. And this is normally what you would do if you were at the clubs or you're at the conferences, uh, except it's all digital yeah. and it's happening all the time. So now you have that that whole interaction, even though you're not re- seeing these people in person, you're still getting that engagement. And yeah. I've actually made friends from Clubhouse. Like, I've never met before in my life. And, and I've just only chatted with them on Clubhouse. And now I'm friends with these people.
1: Yeah, it's pretty cool, huh? I've been it's so amazing. impressed with the environment created by Clubhouse. That, that I have access in Clubhouse to people I could never have reached, never have communicated with who are it's like, oh my gosh, I wish I had known you twenty years ago. Yeah. You know? So it's it's fascinating. It's a fascinating app.
0: Absolutely. And that's the thing, is like I think these days, you know, anybody who, you know, you know, at least at the time of this recording is still, you know, conferences and things like that is, is very much, you know, in a very great area, whether it's gonna happen or not. But you know, despite that, there are so many tools that are available for you yeah. to connect with people. And, yeah. you know, you definitely want to take advantage of that. I mean, there's, I really do. there really is no reason to, you know, to not take, to utilize these uh, opportunities to really get to know more people. Cause that's the other thing too, being a studio owner, like you said, it's like, it's all about who, you know, it's like, you know, you need, yeah. you need people to, to refer you um, to others and to, you know, appreciate your work, or even to know that you exist and have a space.
1: Life is a contact sport.
0: That's you know I love that. That's great. That's
1: the title of a book by a man, music manager, I think his name is Ken Cragen years ago.
0: I knew what that cause I was like, I heard that phrase before. You're right. That's where he I says, heard it says I from.
1: never leave an elevator without everybody's business card, because you don't know if they're not the person you're looking for. You know. So I thought that that's that's pretty fascinating. I've never quite done
0: that. Hey, can I get your card? Can I get your card? I but maybe I, he was exaggerating, but that's an interesting point, you know. It is. And, and honestly, I do, I do the same thing. I'll, I'll collect business cards for people that have nothing to do with music at all because you just don't know who they know or where they're going to lead in life. And also, too, even the people that don't have business cards, the people that are just starting out, you don't know where their journey is going to be you have no idea. So that's why it's so important to be kind, you know, take the time to talk to people, get them to know you. Cause you know, I've, I've had interns that went on and started working at, you know, at Fender and um, one of my uh, recent team members uh, just got a job at CAA. So you just don't know. Yeah. You just don't know where, you know, where people are going to lead in life. And I'm just a naturally that kind of person anyway. Like I just like Mm. to talk to people and, you know, get to know them and be friendly with people. But you know, there, there's a strength there. Mm-hmm. So um, speaking of, uh, going back to the uh, uh, studio for a second here, I want to, uh, we're all talking about like being friendly and connecting and networking. Um, there's also the the struggles of running a studio too. And of course, one of them is troublesome clients and in this case, specifically artists. So um, this is also a good question for those who are looking to do engineering producing. So I'm sure you had your fair share um, how do you handle those situations if an artist is um, being troublesome in, during the recording session?
1: Well, you know, troublesome is a broad term. So I, I, will, I will say this. There are troubles created by, by the mere process of being the facility owner. So, for example, you're going to have clients who want to work at 9 o'clock in the morning weekdays, and you're going to have clients who want to start at 10 o'clock at night weekdays or weekends, you know? And a lot of musicians who perform on weekends want to work during the week, but they want to stay in the same schedule of working late. Uh, And yet you'll get a call from Penguin Books and they want to do an audio book, but they're going to start at nine o'clock in the morning because they're they're off at five o'clock, you know? And if they're calling you from New York, they're going to be off at five o'clock their time, which means you're going to be done by two or three o'clock Arizona time, you know? So you start really, really early. So it's kind of, you have to be prepared to work around the clock. Because in between those sessions, you're doing all of the bookkeeping and scheduling and getting back to everybody you couldn't talk to while you were in a session. So you're, you're really around the clock. So that's, that's number one. And secondly, as a facility, you're not going to really pick your projects because if someone comes to you and says, we want to do this, you can't, you can't really say, no, I don't want to do that. That's, that's a discriminatory business practice. You can't just sell to someone and not to someone else. If you're a facility you have to sell that service to whoever wants it. Uh, if you're a producer, you can decide, I'm not the right producer for your record. I'm, I'm not going to produce this record, or I'm not going to produce uh, audio books anymore. I mean, you can kind of pick and choose your work. But as a facility, you don't. it's very difficult to walk that line. So you pretty much have to take work that comes if you're available. And I guess maybe the only way to avoid the work you don't want is to say you're not available. You know, and so I tended to have, I mean, problem clients, one problem would be clients that don't pay. Another problem is clients that don't behave, you know, um, and I think clients that don't pay, everyone would have a different way to deal with that. I, as a facility owner, learned very early on that I would not confirm a date in the in the calendar unless I had a 50% deposit or it was a reoccurring client who I trusted, right? hmm but once I had fifty percent, I thought, okay, well, now how bad can they screw me? It's just going to t- cut my rate in half if I don't get the rest of the money, and I'll negotiate not turning over the masters until I have that money, you know. And people who people who don't have the fifty percent down, or people that um, get, you know, offended when you want the rest of the money before you deliver the master, they they're not going to pay you. Right, they're the ones who aren't going to pay you. Those so are the ones that got a problem. Yep. And they hired you, they're gonna pay you. So I think that when you put those those little rules in place, you weed out all the people who were gonna screw you in the first place because it's a lot harder to do it. So, you know, that was a simple way not to not to get taken by people who just didn't have any money and they were just playing games with you. You know, the flip side of it is too, everyone becomes your friend because you build these relationships. Well, then they all want the friend's price or they want a deal. You know, I, but I just need to do this one thing and it's like, well, it's gonna take me a couple hours of studio time. You're gonna charge me for that. It's like, yeah, that's what, that's what I do.
0: That's what you do. Sometimes you feel
1: like a stripper. It's like, you know, you, you, these guys go <laughs> in and buy, and buy a lap dance, and then they want to invite her to the barbecue. She's like, dude, no, I, I'm not your friend, you know? <laughs> you know? It's the same kind of thing. You're trying to make them feel good. You're trying to make them have the time of their life while they're paying you. And then when the session's over, you smile very finely, and thanks for coming in. hope to see you again. They're like, hey, why don't you come over this weekend? No, I'm not coming over this weekend. i, I why are you inviting me over to your house, you know, but you become friends. And, and, and when you let the, that friend line blur the professional line, and it will always, you know, uh, then that complicates all the business relationships too.
0: It does. And I, have I've worked, uh, directly with friends. There's, there's friends that I made because we worked directly with each other. Yeah. And then afterwards, and then some people that was friends even before then, and then we worked directly afterwards. And I, the, the best thing is, is that I always look at is being fully transparent, and and being honest right and making sure that those expectations are set and you know honestly if they are you if you know is and as long as you're being respectful to to them they should be at least respectful to you understanding that this is your profession and that you normally get paid for it and it's your decision if you want to give them the quote-unquote friend rate or cut on the deal that's up to you to make that decision not for them to expect that out of you
1: Yeah. So I would just say as up and coming studio owners, it's something that you're going to surf constantly, you know? And I have dear friends who, yeah, when they call up, I'm like, okay, if I'm not doing anything, come on in, you know, because it'd be great joy for me to do this with them, you know? But I mean, I'm in a very different place in my career. I don't own a commercially open room. I have my own little space, you know? Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: I just do what I want here. It's kind of different than having a commercially open facility.
0: Absolutely. So, for artists, then on the flip side, when they, uh, let's say, they booked uh, a time, you know, whether it's you or you know, or just recording session in general, what are some things that you usually recommend to artists that they prepare before they go into having a studio session?
1: Well, like uh, if they've been around, they know what they know what to expect, and they'll they'll essentially be prepared. Or on the really really high end level they aren't gonna prepare till they get there because they don't have time to prepare and they don't care. They can spend four weeks in the studio and they're gonna recoup that the next concert they play. You know, they're not. So the money of studio isn't involved with their process. So they literally will book time and not show up for the first three days because they just wanna take some time off, you know? Um, So it's kind of odd, but but an up and coming artist who hasn't been in the studio, absolutely. You wanna try to prepare them for number one, understanding what it is they wanna get done. And then going through with them the process of how we're going to get that done, so that you understand if what they want to do is something physically possible in the time constraints. I mean, people literally will come into you going, "Hey, I've got 15 minutes of music I want to record, so I think I need an hour of studio time." And you're like, "Okay, hmm, 15 minutes. That gives a. We can play it once, and we can play it back once, and that gives me another 15 minutes, either end, to set up all the microphones and do cue mixes and tear down." And they're like, I don't even know what any of that means, exactly. But if you have a full band and you wanna play 15 minutes of music, that's like you know a third of a record of an old album, we need a few days to do this. We're not gonna just come in here for an hour and knock it out. And so bands would always ask me questions like, how long do you think it'll take us to make the demo? And the only answer I could really give them that helped to make it clear was, I don't know. I just hit my space bar when you're ready to play and I hit my space bar to play it back. How long do you think it's gonna take you to make your demo? <laughs> I mean, it's on you. Yeah. If you guys play everything perfect the first time, that song's done. But if it's going to take you ten times, well, you know, that's what it's going to take. So you never know how long it's going to take until you get into it.
0: Yeah, I always recommend to my artists when they, before they go into the studio, especially up and coming any artist that talks to me about recording, is that you really need to have everything under your fingers. Like you want to have yeah, everything prepared. Yeah. yeah. Just be just be prepared. You don't want to be, you know, tr- you know, practicing while you're in the studio. You want that time. You want everything to be pretty much flawless and, but giving room for, you know, where if something needs to be changed, you can yeah. change things up if you need to, but it should be under your fingers. So you're not worrying about anything else. You yeah. know, the song forwards and backwards.
1: Yeah. I think that's, you really want them to be that prepared. You know, if I'm producing a record uh, typically it's for an for an overview fee, so it's not by the hour. So now I care a little less about that because mm. I also want to discover a lot of things. I want to change things. I want to get in, push things around, see how they feel, and then kind of find the best place for something to live. A lot of that's done in pre-production sessions with artists where you're doing rehearsing. But even when you get in the studio, sometimes you go, you know what, on this song, we need to, we need to rethink this. This isn't working like we thought. And it's nice when you can discover in that environment, maybe what it needs to be. But as a young, you know, a a new artist going in and you've got a budget and you've got a goal, you can't be making those decisions in the studio. You're right. You have to have it mapped out. And I had one guy who came to me more mapped out than anyone else in the world. And when he sent me an email with what he was gonna do, he had it broken down in five and 10 minute increments through a two hour session. And I'm like, this isn't going to go like this.
0: No, that's not how it's going to happen.
1: I didn't think I could explain to him for obviously from what I got gather was his perception. I couldn't, I had to let him come in. I thought we're just going to do this once, find out what happens. And then we'll sit down and have a talk and we'll figure out where we'll, if we'll go forward. But you know what? He came in and we did exactly what he did on the scraper. We, it, wow. Just, just that's,
0: that imp- that's really impressive.
1: Yeah. He's a, uh, He's kind of a genius and he's also kind of a crazy guy, which is not uncommon to kind of be border to swim in both, you know, pools. But um, he had this plan. He'd been, he'd done a little bit of work and and he just cuz one of those guys who he'll always make it land on its feet, no matter what, anyway. So it was fascinating. It was, a, it was I was educated that day by his processes, you know, cause they were so foreign to my experience.
0: Speaking of processes, you mentioned before about pre, um, of pre-production. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I, I think that's something, especially with up-and-coming artists, that gets often overlooked is oh, yeah. the importance of. So you could talk a little bit more about that and the importance of the recording process.
1: Yeah, I think when you've been in the studio, you know anybody who actually goes into the studio and makes a record learns a lot about uh, what to listen for because everything is kind of laid bare and clear and clean. Uh, and so in a rehearsal room, It's not that way. And so when you're in your little rehearsal room, maybe the bass player and the drummer aren't really listening to each other that close. And even if they're trying to, maybe they can't hear each other that well in that space. So you don't notice that while the kick drum pattern is doing one thing, the bass rhythm is only lined up half the time. And because of what the bass player is choosing to play, it's not working, the groove keeps getting broken and he just needs to change when he's playing a little bit to match the kick pattern or the kick drum pattern needs to change a little bit to match the line. depending on which is more important to the groove. And a lot of times that's not identified in, in, in practice. So you get to the studio, it's like, even if it's all grooving then it comes to a drum fill, the drummer does the fill and the bass player does the fill and the guitar player does the fill. And you're like, wait, it's like, everybody just said, screw you, I'm taking this, you know? And it's like, that's not, that's not how it works. So we have to decide who's going to do what, and it all has to kind of fly in formation. It has to kind of make sense. Um, and so a lot of times in rehearsal rooms, the bands don't seem to be able to hear that stuff. They're not listening to you. They're listening to them. I'm trying to get this riff that I'm trying to do. They do not realize the bass player is trying to do a riff that's a complete clash. you know. And so I think when a producer or anybody with studio experience can come into the rehearsal, they can very quickly identify a lot of that. And then modify that, clean that up before you get to the studio. You also begin to realize that as songwriters, they may have started with one tune and then it morphed a lot, but they never realized. Well, you really need to slow it down now because you've got way too many words and I, and the rhythm's not working and I can't hear it. So you start to sense timing too, other things you just speed up or slow down. That's a big thing that can be added in pre-production. And then you know if you've got one guitar player in the band at a rehearsal. You don't realize he has 10 guitar parts in his head that he wants to play too. So if you get wait till you get to the studio and he starts to drop these things on you and, and they haven't really been worked out because he's never played them against himself, that's another problem. So that pre-production rehearsal time really lets the producer know how difficult the record's gonna be and gets everybody on the same page about parts and getting all the parts worked out. I did pre-production with the band uh, for about two months one time. And I said, you know what guys, the, uh, the drummer was a problem and, and he would get better and remember everything that I said and the next rehearsal, he'd forget it all. And so I said, let's just go to my house because I had a little setup at my home at the time. I said, I'm, I'll cook some burgers. We'll record the whole album in a day. So we have a demo of the album and I wanna play it for you so you can hear what you sound like before we go in the studio and get serious because they were gonna spend a bunch of money. And so we did this and the drummer was a little disappointed and he was the first to leave. And as the guitar player who was kind of in charge was leaving at the end of the evening, he says, so how long is it going to be before we're ready? And I said, with this drummer, I have no idea. Right, no idea. And so the, the band looked at each other. So what if we get a session, guy So we could start Monday. Everybody's <laughs> good. I could have a guy here Monday who doesn't need to rehearse with you guys, and it'll be ridiculous. So they said, book him. And I did. And he did. And the record was great. You know, but so you have to work with what you have to work with. And I've always felt really bad if I'm the producer about taking money from an act that you know they're not good enough. You know that no matter how much time we spend, I'm never gonna wanna listen to this record. I can't yeah. make a record and I can't take their money. I'd rather sit them down and I did it with a lot of bands, sit them down in the studio and say, you should spend that money on a website and some t-shirts because you can sell the t-shirts to make money to pay back for the website. And then all of that's gonna be marketing. that's gonna work for you guys while you get better and then come in the studio, wait a few years you know, I said every other studio is going to take your money, but I don't think I'm not going to take your money. You're not ready. You know, it's, it doesn't help anybody.
0: No, and don't
1: the, forgive me uh, if I take that money.
0: <laughs> right, and then and right. also the reputation, because you know as well as you know that that at the end of the day, they're not going to be end up being happy with the end results, no matter how hard you try, and right. that's going to look poorly on you anyway. Yeah, yeah, and you
1: got to learn that. So when you run a facility, you're going to have to manage that against you got to pay the bills, so you've got to take the work. But if you're the one in charge of the, of the art, if you're the producer, that's a whole other bag than if you're the facility and the engineer.
0: So. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I do want to shift gears a little bit because yeah. um, you do some other things as well. And one of them is the Auto D Show. So can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I started a podcast and it's hosted at Star Worldwide Networks, which is Dave Pratt's company in Scottsdale and uh, I think we're 233 or 234 episodes in. It's usually a weekly podcast. It's about an hour long. It's not video like this glorious show. It's just audio, you know, Um, but he's got a nice studio up there to do it in. So it's kind of convenient. We run in, the guests run in or they call in and uh, the guests are generally artists, whether they're musicians or painters or authors or directors or actors, tends to be anybody in a creative field. Um, And then Uh, We initially focus on the music in their life and how music impacts their process, but then just kind of get into their thing and what they what they do. That's amazing. Yeah. I don't you know, I don't have it's kind of like you and what we're doing. This is very conversational. I don't write out a bunch of commercial or a bunch of commercials, a bunch of questions like an interviewer. I tend to read their bio and have it in front of me in case something comes up. And and then when they're speaking, I'll jot a word down or something that that I'm interested in. And so I always jump on whatever they're talking about that interests me, which does keep it conversational. But that's what's fascinating to me is learning about people. Um, you read some interviews, print, print interviews, what's your favorite you know, band? What's your favorite vehicle if you were to... you know, It's just crazy stuff. And it's like, I don't care. I don't care. I don't even care what the answer to that question is. I wait for you to talk. And then something I'm fascinated about is what's going to drive the next question. You
0: know? it, it's funny. I feel, I feel like... Yes, I like to keep these very conversational. Um, I do uh, list I do list questions, but the way I do it, I use it more as a, as an outline. So I have, I like to be like the the driver of your sto- of, of the guest story, where yeah. I know what I, I you like you mentioned. I do my homework. I check you know read their bios and things like that too, and to find things that I find are really interesting that I think the audience will want want to hear about as well. And so I built it in there. But then, if we go off tangent, if we talk about other things, you know, I want it to be a very natural conversation. But then too, like if we're at a, like a stopping point in that that mm-hmm. part of the story, or whatever the case is, I know what else I can talk about, and what yeah, else we a can jumping
1: off point, you know, someplace. jumping
0: off point. And sometimes you, you you'll hear it, you'll hear it all the time. I'll be like, let's shift gears. Like, if anybody listening, that's a, that's like a very podcaster term for I have another question that <laughs> I want to now ask. <laughs> Like you know especially if we don't have like a good segue we're just like oh let's shift the gears a little bit and that's like our excuse of like okay here's the next question i want to talk about cool. so but yeah it's it's it is you know i never thought i don't like did you ever think that you would be a podcaster because you're you were behind the scenes you know you're always behind the board so right you know, i mean you were a musician too and you're performing but you ever thought about you know like being you being a talker? Crossed
1: my mind uh, in fact i i got invited to do it by dave pratt um whenever whenever my I felt like my life was in the shitter I'd go see Dave I don't know why I, I knew him you know we weren't close close friends but we were good friends and so I remember I was, hey Dave how are you doing oh oh man this is going on that's going on you should come down and see the studio okay I, I will so I went down and see the studio when he first opened it for the for the podcast thing he's like you should start a show and I'm like why what would I talk about you know just interview music people you know and I was like I don't know so a couple more years go by and then I'm closing the studio and I'm like, now nah, what am I going to do with my life? I'm closing the studio. Um, so I called Dave. Hey man, what's happening? Come on down. We got five channels now and we have three studios. You should start a show. So, okay, well, what the heck? What am I? I got time. I got to have something to talk about in social media. So I kind of started the show uh, lack of anything else really to do initially. And then after a few episodes, I was like, this is fun. I can't believe how much fun this is. So I just really enjoyed it and I've never stopped. It's been about five years now, you know, and when I get really busy, it doesn't go every week. I try to keep it up, but uh, it's, it's uh, two to three times a, a month right now.
0: That's fantastic. So that's and you're, it's so funny that you mentioned that you kind of landed on that. That's how the eighty twenty show was started as well. In fact, um, our uh, mutual colleague of ours, uh, Danny Cutler from KWSS, mm-hmm. who's also been a guest on the show, uh, we, as 8020 Records, teamed up with KWSS for their fall fundraiser for a couple of years, where um, we would normally every year do a, a what's called a guilty pleasure show, where we get artists to do covers of "quote unquote" guilty pleasure songs like Backstreet, Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears. It's always a lot of fun, and um, so one of the years, uh, Danny said, "Hey, you should do like a radio, like a radio spot for the show." And I'm like, I hate my own voice. Like, I don't like my voice. I'm like, I'm like I'm, I don't know how to podcast. Like, I have my I have New York accent fighting the Arizona accent, whatever that is. Right. So I never thought of myself as doing something like this. And so she egged me on. And so finally I said, fine, fine, I'll go ahead and do it. So I had a friend who, um, who was a podcaster. So, um, went to his place and he kind of showed me, you know, gave me some tips and things like that too, and helped me record the episode. Um, who's also a guest, uh, Christopher uh, Leon price was another guest on the show and he's a filmmaker and podcaster. So thank you, Chris, cause he helped me out there. And, um, So, yeah, so we play the ad and I would have like, you know, friends like say, oh, hey, I heard you on the radio. You're great. And, you know, I don't know if they were just being nice to me, whatever the case is. But I had no joke, Otto. I had people in shows that I've never met before. They go, oh, are you Mike from 8020? And I said, yeah. And they're like, oh, I heard your ad on KWSS. It was great. And I said, okay, well, I guess people like my voice on the radio. So I thought about it and went, you know, I've always been thinking about doing a podcast at some point in time, so why not? And that's how it got started, was just like the, I guess people don't mind my voice and don't (laughs) mind listening to me, so why not do it? And- That's very cool. And it was by far one of the best things I've done because I have so much fun doing these interviews and talking to people, people that I've known for years, like yourself, and some people that I've never met before in my life. And, you know, it's the first time- um you know talking to them is on the podcast itself mm-hmm. and it's been such an incredible experience.
1: Yeah, yeah, I feel the same way.
0: So also, um, so you you doing this show, and then you fairly recently uh you started a whole new venture called The Recording Artist. And yeah, which yeah I you saying show uh, represented. Uh, yeah dot com <laughs> the recording dot com. So can you uh talk about more about how that came about and why yeah. you started that and what That's it cool is it.
1: Well, it, what it is essentially is a, a membership subscription website uh, with a lot of free content and free pages. So you can go and sign up at the TheRecordingArtist.com. In fact, it, when you go to the home page, you don't have to sign up. There's a video you can watch. There's a bunch of pages you can access to talk about what we're doing. And then if you want to get into the rest of the pages, you just sign up and that's free. Then there's a bunch of content you can check out. And then uh, what we do, what it's focused on is bringing a band into the studio every Wednesday night and doing a a live recording session for two hours where they record a song from scratch with me in the studio. So if you've never seen the recording process as music fans, they've never gotten into the studio. This is a wonderful kind of behind the scenes thing where they get to participate. So while they watch us do it live, they can also chat on our big screen up here in the control room and the band reads the chat and responds back on their microphones, which people hear on their computers, you know. And so we do that every week. We we started last June and went through May, so we did 12 months. Got 46 bands done in 12 months, and then I kind of put the pause button on until January for season. What I'm calling season two, because I just needed some time to finish the television show. We cut a lot of that content, including me going to rehearsals with bands, into a television show that's up on Amazon Prime. It's also on our website. So right now it's free to go to the website, sign up, and under watch our TV show. There are five, the first five episodes of the show are up there. Episode six will be up in a couple of weeks. Hopefully all 10 episodes will be up by the end of the year, which will essentially focus on most of the bands that we had in the first season. Um, it's funny because I don't know which bands are in there are going to be on the shows until I start to juggle the, the stories and mix the music. And sadly, one band I was so thrilled about putting on, I'm having a hard time put on. and It was a band out of Tucson called Chateau Chateau that I loved. I just didn't like the footage I got. And I picked a shirt especially to wear for that session and it looks horrible on the show. And it's like, <laughs> oh God, I wish I hadn't worn that. I don't want to see that. I don't even want to see any of that footage. And the, their their experience and process shouldn't be sacrificed by my not liking my shirt. But that's part of the problem is making something that looks good. So yep. I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to, I think I've got a couple ways I'm going to squeeze them in because I really love those guys and I, I'm going to get them in somehow. But so it's a, it's a bit of a juggle to get, to get everybody into the show, but Season two in January, we'll be starting off. We're lining up bands now. We've got a few bands that we're going to we're gonna be talking to. And I'm excited about that. We're also, in keeping it going once we get going again, uh, we're talking to potential investment partners to finance our marketing and our cast and crew, because right now there's a lot of volunteers, and I can't stand that. I want everybody to get paid when we fire it back up again. And um, I'm, a few people are paid, but I want everybody to get paid, you know. And then on top of that, we're looking at uh, I've been spending a lot of time all this week, actually, in webinars with uh, a couple different marketing guys relating to uh, funnels to generate the ads that bring people to the page that are the kind of people that are going to want the product that then sign up and that then get engaged because we really need the memberships to drive the, the, the thing and finance it eventually. Uh, but to, to, if I could jump back to your other part of the question, which is why did you start this? That's kind of what mm-hmm. it is. And it's a blast and the bands love it. And the fans who watch it love it. They're rabbit. they're here every week. And then uh, the crew cast and crew level, we always have just a fantastic time. So it's just been a ton of fun. But the reason I started it was back when I had a big fancy studio in Phoenix, you know, around 20, 2012, 13, 14, business was falling off. Uh, studios were closing all over the country, more and more home stuff was happening. We hadn't gotten any major label record calls in quite a while. And the last two that we did get for the studio that did book, like we want the next three months. We just got to finalize who our producer is going to be. Well, once they got the producer, he convinced them to work at their house. So we'd lose the booking, you know, hmm. and it became just apparent that studios were less and less and less a viable uh, place in the, in the music recording market than the producer who had the studio, they'll have studios or at least relationships with them, as do I now here in my house. So, um, I was kind of like, if studios are going to survive, they need to pivot and find a new client base that isn't record labels and isn't bands, but they still want to make music. Because bands aren't going to pay it because they have to, re- they need to save money, and, they need, and the fans want them to make constant music. So they have to buy a computer and a microphone or a bunch of microphones, and they have to work at home. So they're almost forced by their fans to create a lot more content, and so they have to do it themselves, can't afford it. So the studios lose those clients. The record labels, they lose because record labels are hiring producers and let the producer find the studio. So the studios, the larger footprint studios were really losing clients on both ends. So I thought we need a new client. And so it used to be, you know, when the first new digital reverb came out, only the fancy studios could afford it. When the first hard drives came out, Pro Tools one gigabyte hard drive, you know, uh, only the fancy studios could afford it. So they always had that level of technology that home studio didn't have. They kept it at bay for all those years. But that's kind of gone and um so i thought they need a product that the that the home studio can't can't use so i thought what's the cool thing about these big fancy studios is that they look like starship enterprises know, they look fancy yeah so i thought well that's what they have they are a stage. they are a television stage more than they are a recording facility no one needs them they can record at home but they want to be in there because it's cool so i said you have to sell to people who want to be in there because it's cool, which is people who want to be engineers or people that want to get into the process. And so I really thought, well, if we put up a bunch of cameras and sell to the fans that want to watch us do it, we found a new client base. We don't need to charge bands; We'll charge the fans. And since they won't pay for the records because they want to stream them for free, they might pay for access to watch because that's something they can't get without paying for it here. And so it was really the idea was to kind of take the way money seemed to want to flow through those all of those components as opposed to the way we wanted it to flow. You know, Musicians pay the bands, the bands pay the studios. You know, that was gone. I mean, the fans pay the bands, bands pay the studios. That was gone. So the new way was, well, maybe bringing the fans to pay the studios, the studios can pay the bands to come in and record. And then the band can own their master. Like right now, record companies sign you, they front you the money, you pay back out of your royalties, which means you paid for it, but they still own it. They still own the masters. And it's like, that's crazy. You're paying for it and they own it. So this business model is kind of like, Hey, we'll pay you to come in and make a record and you can have it when we're done. Cause I can't sell records. I don't know how anybody can sell records. It's tough. It's really so I'll tough. let the band sell it, let the band license it. They're free and clear with the new master. And we're just charging the fans to watch. My goal with the process is to get the membership high up, that I'm paying these bands right now. We're not paying the bands. They get a free recording, but my goal is to be making money so we can be paying the bands. I'd love to be paying the bands. I crap out of money to come in and record because then it's kind of like I'm hiring you to do a show.
0: Yep. You know, it kind of can play even sexy. more than that. You're getting, you're getting obviously yourself and yeah. you know, and your services in producing, in producing, uh, that particular song and mm-hmm. you know even though it's it's very truncated it's only in a two-hour time span yeah I, I mean there's there's recording the recordings that come out are still fantastic um because you still mix them you mix them the following day yeah, in fact
1: the next day online with people watch and i can't believe people
0: watch the mixes oh I, i'm not surprised at all Like, any like people you know people watch people paint like it's like you know yeah. people love to see other people doing things and mm-hmm. being productive um but yeah, I mean, we had uh, one of our artists, uh, Gabe Kubanda, was yeah, on yeah, the recording artist. And yeah. we released uh, that, the song that came out, that came out of the recordingartist.com. We actually released that, that song on Spotify. And it's great because, you know, as, even for a record label, this is a great deal because the artist gets to go into the studio, gets this whole live stream experience that they, that they can engage with their fans with. And then at the end of the day, we still get a mastered version of the recording that we right. can go ahead and release. It's, yeah, and then
1: it's potentially it's, it's you've got another entity marketing you because they're they're marketing the show, you know? And then uh, it's all of the different bands involved that brought draw eyes back and your artist gets seen again. You know, there are 46 songs on that website that people can listen to. And I have wow. to tell you, we invited over 140. Well, I would just, should say that between the bands we invited and the bands that signed up on the website, we have over 140 bands in a spreadsheet that we were – talking to about scheduling or had reached out to. They didn't, hadn't responded to us. And 46 different bands we got in in year one. When you go and listen to that stuff, it blows me away. It blows me away at how incredibly talented this market is, this, this talent pool. We've got so many great bands and they're not just bands. The songs are good. It's like they are bands writing good songs. And, and there's so many more bands we didn't get on the show. That, that I would love to have. So, you know, when we started up again, people were like, you're just going to run out of bands. I'm like, are you kidding me? There's
0: hundreds more. Hundreds there's hundreds. more than enough talent. It, yeah. It, and just, and it, in, just it, it, in just Arizona alone, just Arizona alone. There's more than enough talent.
1: Yeah. So it's been, it's really been something. Cause then with the television show too, it's kind of like we're featuring a Phoenix music market on TV, you know, and that's pretty cool um, to get, to get, to see these bands. And to be honest, we have so much fun. It's just, it's just so much fun. So there's a lot of comedy in it. And, and, you know, we enjoy that.
0: It is. And in fact, one of my, um, cause I, I jumped into a couple of the live streams myself. And, uh, actually one of my favorite parts is, um, is there's a camera in the kitchen when you guys take a yeah. break and, yeah. and like did not expect that coming. And I was laughing so hard. We we're like, wow, you actually have this camera live stream in the kitchen when the, when the man's taking a and break, eating
1: pizza. Well, I'm in eating pizza. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly
0: so yeah. i mean it is it is such a fun and that's i think the whole thing right it's like and i think this is just true across the board whether you're doing something like this or producing running your own studio um, being in a band you know you should this is supposed to be fun
1: yeah. this is
0: supposed to be fun i mean that that's what i you know why i love to do this why i love to do the podcast why i love to do releases it's hard work but it's fun yeah, You know, I really do enjoy, it. you get to, you do all kinds of creative things. You can, you know, you can joke around, you can have, you know, you can laugh because, you know, if this is music, You I mean, it's right. supposed to invoke emotions. It's supposed to be something that, you know, is entertaining and enjoyable for everybody. Right. So,
1: well, you know, and interestingly, the, the, one of the impacts of this process with the recording artist being two hours, as you mentioned, is that in the old days, sometimes you'd make a record in two hours because studios were expensive and we could only afford two hours. So you had to go in and get a record done. But now you work at home. You're never done with the record. You're never done because you can always just try something else tomorrow. And you you spend thousands of hours on a record. You're never finished because you're just never completely happy. Um, So this whole concept really comes back to you get two hours. So some bands won't be on the show because they aren't good enough to do something in two hours. They're not confident enough that that they're good enough. Let's put it that way. And other bands like Final Station was in here, you know, and they play, the, they play the song the first time down, everybody in the band live. And you're like, okay, well, we got an hour and 55 minutes left. And it's Like this is finished, you know, what do we do? Sounds incredible. And half that show turns into a concert where they just play a few more songs. But so it's, it's, it's really fun, I think, for bands who, uh, who want to spend six or eight hours on their record, because this makes them go, okay, you really got to focus. You're gonna, we're gonna get this, you only get two hours. And so it's kind of not as polished. It's still kind of live, still kind of has some rough edges, but that chaos is where that energy hides in the track. And I love that. So I love pushing them through the two hour thing, you know, and really racing against the clock to get it done. That, that really lights me up to, to have that deadline.
0: And it's a different, ver- and now is it truly a different version of the song. Yeah. And that's the other thing too, because uh, these are uh, songs that are generally recorded, uh, the, the R's are already recorded before. So these are brand new versions of the songs and you're getting a whole different feeling and experience because like you said, that you're, they're trying to get that down into two hours. So there's going to be a little bit of rough edges. It's going to yeah. have a little bit of that live feeling to it, even though it's in the recording studio, but still have the quality of being in the recording studio.
1: Yeah. It's like people who could fly. I love those guys. Oh, fantastic and, um, people. And uh, the songs they sent were like stacks of background vocals. And I'm thinking, gosh, you know, if I did this record in the studio, we spent a lot more than two hours just on background vocals. So I thought this is going to be tough, you know. But uh, James, is, he's so good and so quick at knocking out his parts because he knows what he needs. Uh, you know, so that was, that was fun. But, you, you know, when you see the two-hour window and you see the song you have to tackle, uh, because the way the process works, and the reason most of the songs have been pre-recorded is our members get to vote on what songs going to be recorded. So I need demos for them or previously released versions for them. So the bands are requested to submit three and then the members pick. So the band doesn't know what song they're doing on the show. So we're live worked. And then they find out, you know, so that can be, that can be kind of, kind of crazy. In fact, one band said, well, we need to know because it's all different gear and we're coming from Tucson. So we're going to, we, we need to know what to bring you know so it's like okay well i'll tell you here's here's what came out the folks <laughs> uh, you know so the, the members still picked to put the band you know the band new so they could bring the right stuff because we're a small shop so we can bend here and there to make things work for everybody you know Absolutely. But I, that's 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 the fun of it it's uh and for the bands i the hope for the bands is that they do enjoy we've had at least half a dozen have released the records and and a dozen have taken the multi-track because I, I give them the multi-track I'm like look we tracked it You can do more. You can take it back home and finish it and do whatever you want. So we, you know, we're giving them all of that content to just for, for
0: participating. Absolutely. And yeah, it's, it's sometimes like you have these, these rules that you implement and, in place because you you know like this will work and this is the format yeah. of what you want the show and things like that too. But of course, you know, in different cases, like sometimes it's good to have some sort of leniency, yeah. you know, depending upon the different types of situations. But that again, that's also having that structure, then that's what you no know, pe- people will expect every single time. And again, it encourages involvement and interactivity with the fans because they have influence into what the actual song is going to be that the yeah. you know that the artist is going to be playing.
1: Yeah. And in one session, I remember I told the band, I have a better idea for the ending. Let's do it like this. And we worked it up. And then we asked everybody who's watching, you know, what do you think? Ending number one or ending number two? And they all liked the first ending, you know, not the one I did. So I was like, fine. Because we'll <laughs> yeah, they're the art part. That's what we call them, those members. So we're doing the record for them. So if that's what they want. The ones who are going to be vocal about it, then that's what they get.
0: That's amazing. Well, I can't wait for, uh, season two of the recording That's, uh, it's really exciting, but, um, but I do really appreciate being on this, uh, the show out this was, this yeah. was so much fun.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been great to visit.
0: Absolutely. Real quick, before I let you all go, I want to take the opportunity to really appreciate the fact of all of you listening to the podcast. I've been honestly looking for ways on how to improve the show moving forward. So if you have any ideas or suggestions on what else we can do that you would like to hear or any other ways that we can engage with you, I would love to hear about it. So whenever you have a chance, you can email me. My personal email address is Mike, that's M-I-K-E, at 8020records.com. Or you can engage with us on any of our social media, just at 8020 records on Instagram, Facebook, whatever the case is. Just shoot us a DM. Let us know what you guys are thinking about the, uh, the whole show in general. And I uh, really do appreciate it. So thank you again so much for all of you listening. It means the world to me. Thank you so much for listening to The 8020 Show. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow. If you enjoyed the episode or this podcast overall, please leave us a review or comment on our socials which you can find us at 8020-RECORDS on pretty much all platforms. You can also check us out on our website at www.8020records.com. And as always, be happy, be healthy, and be productive.